Thank you for leading us in praise this morning. If you have your Bibles with you, I'd like you to turn to the last chapter of 1 Corinthians. Corinthian church was a church with problems, and Paul has spent 16 chapters trying to straighten them out. And we have spent, according to my records, about two and a half years going through 1 Corinthians verse by verse. And this morning we come to the end. Paul is going to close the letter. And he does so by giving five commands in chapter 16, verses 13 and 14. This is really the positive side of all the negatives in this book. For 15 chapters, he's been saying, don't do that, stop doing that, quit doing that. Now he says, do this. In fact, if they had just gotten what's contained in these two verses, we wouldn't have needed the rest of the book. I want us to, this morning, look at these five short commands in these two verses. I've listed them in your bulletin. Command number one is be alert. Chapter 13, be on the alert. That means wake up, be aware, shake yourself out of your slumber. Obviously, we as Christians need this exhortation because it's given 22 times in the New Testament. We have to be alert. We have to be awake. We have to be aware of what's going on. The Corinthians were not aware. They were not alert. Satan was having a field day in their church, and they were unaware of what was going on. That's why in chapter 5 and verse 6, with immorality in their midst, Paul says, don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? In chapter 6 and verse 3, when they were having Christians taking Christians to law court and suing each other, he said, why can't you resolve that in your midst? Don't you know that you will judge angels one day? And again, in the context of immorality, in chapter 6 and verse 19, he says, don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Wake up. Be alert. He summed it up in chapter 15 and verse 34 when it, where it literally says, and the King James has it right, awake to righteousness and sin not. I don't know about you, but I need this exhortation. So oftentimes in life, we go through and we're just kind of in a spiritual slumber. We're just sort of half awake. The Bible says we are dead spiritually, but we come to Christ, we have life, and then we kind of fall back into a sleep, a spiritual slumber where we're not really aware of what's going on spiritually. And so the exhortation in Scripture over and over again is, wake up, be alert, be aware, don't slumber. In 1 Peter 5.8, the Bible says, be on the alert, for Satan is like a roaring lion. And he's going around wanting to devour you. In Mark 14, 38, Jesus said, watch and pray. Be alert 
and pray so that you don't enter into temptation. In Matthew 7, 15, Jesus said, beware of false teachers. In Ephesians 6, 18, Paul says, be alert in prayer. In Matthew 24, 42, Jesus says, be on the alert for the Lord's return. Be awake. Don't be like the the five virgins who were asleep when the master came. Be alert because Jesus is coming back. We need to watch. We need to be aware. We need to be awake. That's command number one. Command number two is be sturdy. Verse 13, stand firm in the faith. I like people who stand for what they believe, don't you? A lot of people are like chameleons. They change with their surroundings. They blend into the conversation, whatever that conversation may be. They believe whatever is popular at the moment. And unfortunately, that is considered an attribute in our society. People give themselves what I call self-compliments today. They say, I am open-minded. Is that a compliment? Our society applauds you if you float around on every subject like a butterfly that never lands. But if you ever firmly land, you're narrow-minded. You're wise if you're searching and you're seeking and you're on a journey to discovery. But if you ever find truth, you're narrow-minded. That's the atmosphere of our society. And Paul says, I want you to stand firm in the faith. The Corinthians were chameleons. They were blowing around in the breeze. In chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians, he says they were taking human wisdom and giving it an equal place alongside God's revelation. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 3, some in their church were actually calling Jesus accursed. In chapter 15 and verse 12, some were saying there's no resurrection and attacking the very heart of the gospel. And so Paul says, be firm, stand fast. And what gives us our stability? What do we stand on? He says, stand firm, notice, In the faith. Now, he doesn't say stand firm in your faith. He says stand firm in the faith. He's not talking about something subjective here. He's talking about something very objective. This is not a reference to your inner belief. It's a reference to the content of the gospel. Whenever you get that phrase, the, or the, the, what is it, a preposition? The in front of faith, he's talking about the content of the truth. Jude uses it that way in verse 3 of his little letter. He says, contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all handed down to the saints. 1 Corinthians 15.1, Paul says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel, which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand. You stand in the gospel. Philippians 1.27, standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. 
The Corinthians needed to stand firm in the faith. And so do we. Because we live in a world where there's a constant attack on the Word of God and on the person of Jesus Christ and on the gospel. When someone says to you, the Bible is just one book, why don't you get out there and read the other books? They all have truth in them. Where do you stand? When someone says, well, Jesus is a wonderful prophet, but there's lots of other prophets, listen to them as well. Where do you stand? When someone says to you, there are many ways to God, the gospel is just one way, Jesus is just one way, where do you stand? You see, the command is that we need to stand on the truth of God's word and not be swayed by this unbelieving world. Third command, be mature. Again in verse 13, act like men. Did you ever hear that when you were young or old? Heard it from my dad. You may hear it from your wife. Act like a man. Be a man. Man up. Grow up. Be mature. The Corinthians were immature. In 1 Corinthians 3.1, Paul says, I should be able to speak to you as mature men, but I have to treat you like babies. In 1 Corinthians 4.21, he says, am I going to have to come to you with a rod? And I'm, am I going to have to come and spank you? 1 Corinthians 14.20, brethren, do not be children in your thinking, yet in evil be babies, but in your thinking be mature. The Corinthians were spiritual babies, and they should have been mature. And so Paul says, act like men, be mature. How do you get mature? Well, in 1 Peter 2, 2, we have the formula. No pun intended. It says, like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word, that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Maturity comes from feeding on and applying the Word of God and then exercising yourself spiritually as you do those things which the Word tells you to do. Be mature. Fourth command, be strong. It's right at the end of verse 13. And I want to point out that in the Greek language, this is a passive verb. Literally, it should read, be strengthened. Because you really can't be strong on your own. That's why Ephesians 6.10 says, be strong in the Lord. Now, the Corinthians thought they were strong. That's why Paul was continually telling them they were puffed up. You're not built up. You are puffed up. And he warns them in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, let him who thinks that he stands take heed lest he falls. They thought they were strong, but they weren't. And so Paul says, be strong or be strengthened. Two steps to that. Number one, you have to realize you're weak. To be strong, you have to acknowledge that you're weak. And in the second letter of Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 9, the Lord says, my power is perfected in weakness. 
And that's why Paul says in that same context, when I am weak, then I'm strong. I have to acknowledge that I'm weak, and then I have to be strong in the Lord. Be strong. And then command number five is be loving. Look at verse 14 and mark this verse. Let all that you do be done in love. When we were in chapter 13 talking about love, I gave you the definition, my definition of love. Love is desiring the very best for the other person, no matter what it costs me, and expecting nothing in return. And Paul says, simply do everything with love. Just let your life be self-sacrificing love. When? In all that you do. I mean, you go back through this book, all the problems in this book would be resolved if they had just done what this one verse says. Because in chapters 1 to 3, they had divisions in the church. Some were saying, I have Paul, others I have Apollos, others I I have Cephas. They had divided themselves up into little cliques within the church. Love would have resolved that. Chapter 5, they had immorality. They thought lust was love. Chapter 6, they were suing each other. Chapter 7, marriage partners were depriving each other and leaving each other. Chapter 8, stronger brothers were running roughshod over weaker brothers. Chapter 11, they had what they called a love feast in which they were totally selfish with their food and getting drunk. Chapters 12 to 14, they had an open service and people were standing up and talking over each other in that context because they were so rude. And the key to it all is love. And that's why the highlight of this whole book is what? Chapter 13, the love chapter. If everyone would apply this one verse, chapter 16, verse 14, we would have very few problems. Just do everything with love. So there are the five commands. Be alert, be sturdy, be mature, be strong, be loving. You say you got a few verses left, okay. If you look at these verses on the surface, looks like a, a bunch of admonitions and hi, how are yous. And sometimes I think we skim over passages like this, just like I know you do with genealogies. Fess up. You, know, you kind of skim through it, and, and you go, i, I got to get on to the good stuff. And oftentimes we miss some very important information as we're skimming over Scripture. And what I'd like us to do is look at these verses together because I really think these last few verses flow out of verse 14. And I've picked out seven expressions here of what it means to do everything with love. First of all, Be loving in evangelism. Look at verse 15. Now I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that they were the first fruits of Achaia. Paul mentions the household of Stephanus. Now, when Paul went to Achaia, which is the province of which Corinth is the capital, they were the first to believe. 
And in chapter 1 and verse 16, Paul tells us he also baptized them. They were the first fruits, meaning there were many who came after them. Now, I suggest to you that Paul's going to Achaia and sharing the gospel and seeing these people come to Christ was an act of love. Sharing the gospel is doing everything in love. In fact, if you share the gospel without loving people, you might as well not share it. I heard somebody criticizing the fact that we're going to have this Reach 2 program, and they were concerned that we're mandating that everybody, that's coming up this fall on evangelism, by the way, September 13th to be here, that we're mandating that everybody has to share the gospel. Well, that's not what we're doing at all. Although Jesus mandated that we share the gospel, so I'll let him say that. What we're saying is that you pick out two people and you pray for those people and you prepare your heart to be ready to share and you love those people enough so that you want to share the gospel with them. That's what we're saying. That's what we're doing is saying this is really a key part of what God has called us to do in his work. And we want to be prepared and we have, want to have hearts that want to share with those people. And you pick the people. They're two people you should already love that you want to share them with. And we will share the gospel in love with those individuals. Let me ask you a question. Have you got first fruits yet? First fruits is just the first. It means there's more. Have you got first fruits in your family? Have you got first fruits in your neighborhood? Have you got first fruits at work? Who are the first fruits in your life? Because that just means God's going to bring in a greater harvest in the future. Love will express itself by sharing the good news with other people. Second, be loving in service. Look at verse 15 again. And that they have devoted themselves for ministry to the saints. The house of Stephanus devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints. Don't you like that? That's the kind of Christian I want to be. I hope you want to be. The people say, he's devoted himself to ministry to the saints. She is devoted to ministry. They weren't assigned, they weren't commissioned, they weren't appointed, they weren't entitled by anybody. Notice, they devoted themselves. They didn't wait until somebody came and said, how would you like a title? How would you like a ministry? No, they devoted themselves to that. Don't wait for somebody to assign you. They probably are not going to assign you. They're not going to commission you. If you're devoting yourself to ministry, they're going to recognize your ministry and rally around that ministry. The church isn't made up of sanctified spectators. We are all in the ministry. And there's nothing you need to be waiting for. You need to devote yourself to service. To who? To the saints. If you're a believer, you're a saint. That's another topic we'll get into sometime. But that means they're serving each other. And what's more loving than that? To serve one another. That's an act of love. Now notice the word devoted. Interesting Greek word. It's a Greek word, tasso. It's from a root 
word that means addicted. And I like this. The house of Stephanus had addicted themselves to serving the saints. They were hooked on it. They were hooked on service. They had an overriding compulsion and desire to serve the saints, and it had become a habit for them. It was a habit that they couldn't shake. And they, in the process, had developed a tolerance. Used to be that serving about this much satisfied them, and now they had to have more to satisfy them. They were addicted, and they had developed a dependence on serving the saints. If they didn't serve the saints, they went through service withdrawal. They were addicted. What about you? Can you go through a week without serving people and say, I feel fine? Or if you go through a few days without serving, you kind of get the shakes. i got to serve somebody because I'm addicted. I'm devoted to serving the saints. Some of us are addicted to other things, and that's why we're not addicted to serving the saints. You say, there's an opportunity to serve, but I'm too busy. Why are you too busy? Because you're addicted to the TV, or you're addicted to your possessions, or you're addicted to your toys, or your possessions, or your activities, or your plans, and you have to put aside those habits and break those habits and those addictions in order to say, I am addicted to serving other people. That was true of the house of Stephanus, and that's what doing all things in love looks like. Third, be loving in submission. Verse 16, that you also be in submission to such men And to everyone who helps in the work and labors. The word submit means to get under. Servants set the pace. And we need to get under their example. We need to submit ourselves to them. Which is an expression of love. That's a great principle. We are not a group of people trying to get on top of each other. We are a group of people trying to get under the right people. And which people are we to get under? We're to get under those who are addicted to serving the saints. Great principle. How do you get to be a leader in God's kingdom? Do you campaign? Do you become real aggressive and real bossy and real assertive and people will let you rule? No. You humble yourself and you serve other people. And when somebody's serving you with an addiction, don't you find it easy to follow them? Find it easy to follow somebody who is devoted to wanting the very best for me and paying whatever price it takes to accomplish that. Fourth, be loving in companionship. He says in verse 17, I rejoice over the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus because they have supplied what was lacking on your part for they have refreshed my spirit 
and yours. These three fellows apparently brought the letter from the church at Corinth to Paul, and he is responding in part in this letter to the letter they brought. And Paul says, I miss you, but because they have come, they have sort of filled up that which was lacking in not seeing you. And these must have been some pretty great guys because he says they were refreshing. One of the reasons I like to come to church is that I get to be around people who are my family. And that's encouraging. That's refreshing. Some of you are not encouraging. That's because all you talk about is your problems and yourself. Let me give you a hint. That's why people walk around you. Don't you want to be refreshing? Even if you have problems, even if I'm struggling, I can still be refreshing to other people. Kind of like prayer meetings. Sometimes our small groups get together and we have a prayer meeting. Somebody says, I know it's not a prayer, but it's a praise. Can I share it? What are you, nuts? Trying to encourage us? What are you? Are you refreshing? To other, that's a great word. When, when other people come around and they leave you, do they go away refreshed by their time? You may share your needs with them. That's okay. But do they go away refreshed? Kind of like they just got a cool drink of water on a hot day. Kind of like a cool breeze when they run into you. Kind of like that old skin bracer commercial. Thanks, I needed that, you know. It's that kind of freshness to it. That's the way these men were. And when you do everything in love, that's the way you'll be. Fifth, be loving in respect. Verse 18 continues, therefore, acknowledge such men. Acknowledge them. That doesn't mean line them up and give them a crown, but it does mean to respect them. In Philippians 2.29, speaking of Epaphroditus, Paul says, hold men like him in high regard. Why? Because he came close to death for the work of Christ risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. Hold him in high regard because he almost died serving Christ. Who do you respect in this life and why? Sometimes we respect people because of their talent or their money or their power or their education or their position or their possessions. No. We are to respect people who are addicted to serving the saints. We need to hold those people in high regard who are giving their life to serve you and me. God holds them in high regard. And if we love in all things, we will as well. Sixth, be loving in hospitality. Verse 19, the churches of Asia greet you, Aquila and Priscilla greet you heartily in the Lord. With the church that is in their house, all the brethren greet 
greet you. Everybody says hi. Now, I want you to notice something. Here's a church saying hi to another church. I hope we haven't lost that today. I hope we can be recognized as a church that supports and affirms and accepts and loves and encourages other churches who are preaching the truth of God. Here's a church saying, we love you and send our greetings to you. Now, on a more personal application, Aquila and Priscilla had a church in their house. That's hospitality. How'd you like to have us meeting at your house every week? See, their house was open to other Christians. Is your house and home an open, transparent, loving haven for brothers and sisters in Christ? That's hospitality. And this is important to God. In 1 Timothy 3.2, one of the qualifications of an elder is that he be hospitable. Aquila and Priscilla were hospitable. We need to be hospitable. That is doing everything in love. And then seventh, be loving in affection. Look at verse 20. Greet one another with a holy kiss. When we had our greeting time, how many people did you kiss? You say, well, that's, that's just a cultural thing. What's interesting to me, I counted, there are five times that we are told to do, all five are commands. It says, greet one another with a holy kiss. You say, well, that could be abused. Well, that's why the emphasis on, is on holy. <laughs> holy kiss. But I think in our society today, I don't think the problem is that I'm worried about too much affection. I think typically we have too little affection. And it was a custom in the, that day when they met somebody, they would hug that person and they would kiss them on the cheek, often both cheeks. In our society, I think because we enjoy our space and our isolation, what do we do? Hello. We do a handshake, and then we go wash our hands. However you apply this verse, I think it's important that we express our affection. when we come together on Sunday morning, you may not see it in their eyes, but there's a lot of hurting people. And sometimes the most important message they get will not be the words I say. They will be a hand on the shoulder, a hug from you. We have widows in our body that never get a touch all week long. And they come here. And they get an embrace from you, and that means so much to them. The expression of love comes through affection. And then look at verse 21. 
the greeting is in my own hand, Paul. Now, Paul typically dictated his letter. He had a secretary who would write it down. In chapter 1 and verse 1, the guy who wrote it down was probably Sosthenes, who is mentioned there. But then to give his stamp of authority to show this is my letter, he signs it himself and gives us a P.S. And notice the P.S., verse 22. If anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed, Maranatha. Where does love start? Love starts with loving the Lord. We typically focus on, do you believe? Paul is asking a synonymous question. Do you love the Lord? Because you won't love the Lord unless you believe. And loving the Lord is really the defining evidence of those who are in the family of God. And I like the fact that he uses the word, when he says the word love, he doesn't use the word agape here. He uses the word phileo, which is brotherly love, which is strong affection. It's the word Peter used in, in, in John 21 when Jesus was with him on the, on the bank of the lake, and, and Jesus said, do you agape me? And Peter said, yeah, I, I phileo you. Do you love me? I like you a lot. Do you love me? I like you a lot. And then Jesus came down and said, do you like me a lot? And Peter was grieved and he said, yes, Lord, I like you a lot. Paul is saying, if you're truly in the family of God, you may not even be able to say, I agape you, Lord, but you can say, I like you a lot. I, I love you with the affection, the affectionate love of a family. And then he adds that phrase, Maranatha, which means the Lord is coming, which is really the prayer of everyone who loves the Lord. Maranatha, Jesus is coming soon. And then he closes with really the two major themes of this book. Look at verse 23. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. This is a whole book of problems. Where is the answer found? It's found in the grace of God. They had immorality in their midst. They had lawsuits in their midst. They had all kinds of problems. All those problems are resolved in the grace of God, which is expressed in the cross of Jesus Christ where he died in our place for our sins. Grace is one theme, and the other theme is in verse 24. He says, my love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Love, Paul. Did you know this was a love letter? You read through it and you might say, this sounds a little stern, it's a little tough, it's a little hard. Gets to the end and says, I love you guys. This is a love letter because love rebukes, love warns, love confronts. Be alert, be sturdy, be mature, be strong. Be loving in evangelism, be loving in service, be loving in submission, be loving in companionship, be loving in respect, be loving in hospitality, be loving in affection.
praise team is going to come back, and we're going to have a baptism as well. But as we stand and close, I'm going to ask you to listen to what the Lord may be saying to you today out of this passage and where you need to apply it to your own heart. Maybe you need to take that first exhortation and wake up today to the reality of what God is doing in this world and in your life. Let's take that challenge as we close our service by praising him together. Let's stand as we close.